Well, good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to see you here at the Vista. Happy Halloween. If we, have, if we have not met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you're joining us for the first time or just the first time in a long time, we are so glad to have you. A lot of us remember what it's like to go to a church for the first time. And so we hope that you feel loved, welcomed, wanted right in and feel at home here at the Vista. Make yourself comfortable. Uh, we are in the home stretch now. We've just got a few weeks left in our series called reading Romans backwards. And if you're here for the first time or just the first time in a few weeks or months, I'll give you a quick, quick summary of where we've been so that you're ready to roll for today. So the Apostle Paul, is a pretty big deal, he wrote this letter to five small house churches located at the heart of the Roman Empire and filled with very different kinds of people from very different kinds of backgrounds who were struggling to get along with each other sometime around 55 CE. And the conflict at the heart of these five small Roman house churches was a conflict between two groups of people, two groups of people that Paul calls the weak and the strong. And so who are the weak, who are the strong, and why are they in conflict with each other? Well, the weak are primarily Jewish Christians who believe in Jesus, right? They believe in Jesus, but, you know, they're still, they're still very Jewish, still very tied to the Jewish law, and they're very meticulous about things like practicing the Sabbath, eating certain things, being circumcised, and they tended to be a bit judgmental of all these loose, libertarian Gentile Christians who had been let loose on the church. They didn't like them very much, running around, you know, these Gentiles, eating bacon, just not being circumcised, inappropriate things like that, right? The the Jewish Christians are not big fans of this. The strong then were primarily Gentile Christians who believed in Jesus, But they just weren't all hung up on all these Jewish laws about, like, the Sabbath and what you ate. And they tended to be a bit contemptuous of what they perceived to be these these very prudish Jewish Christians and all their antiquated laws. And the primary reason we are reading Romans backwards is that it helps us understand that all the seemingly complicated stuff in the first half of the letter is all in service to a very simple goal that gets revealed at the very end of the letter. Namely, Paul wants these cautious, conservative Jewish Christians and these loose, libertarian, Gentile Christians to learn how to get along because if they don't learn how to get along, then the gospel is in jeopardy because if they don't learn how to be the diverse and yet scandalously united family that God has called into being in Christ through the power of the Spirit, then the world cannot believe that God sent Jesus because how in the world is the world supposed to believe that God sent Jesus Christ? How in the world is the world supposed to believe that Jesus Christ has conquered the grave when he can't even conquer the family feuds that infest Christian churches. Makes the gospel unbelievable. Makes sense, right? How in the world is somebody supposed to believe God raised Jesus from the dead when he can't reconcile two people in this room? Doesn't make any sense. And so now armed with the understanding that everything Paul says in Romans is aiming toward that goal, so I'm moving toward that, we've now moved back to the beginning of the letter, better equipped to understand just what exactly it is Paul is trying to say and why he's trying to say it. Dave did a great job walking us through Romans 1 last week. So if you have your Bibles, grab them, because we will be in Romans 2 through 3 this week. We'll start off with Romans 2, 1 through 11. Jump ahead to verse 17. It'll all be on the screen for you as well if you would like to read up there. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. Here's what Paul says. He says, Therefore you have no excuse every one of you who passes judgment. 
For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose, oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is what leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and judgment of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, for there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man and woman who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Jump ahead to verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law and you boast in God and you know his will and you approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and, and you're confident that you yourself, you're a guide to the blind. You're a light to those who are in the darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Romans 2, 1 through 11, 17 through 24. So does anybody know what the term uh, rope-a-dope means? Any boxing fans in the house? You boxing fans, you never get shout-outs in sermons, so this is for you, right? The term rope-a-dope refers to a, a boxing term, boxing, a boxing tactic that was most famously employed by the greatest Muhammad Ali in his uh, very famous rumble in the jungle fight with George Foreman many moons ago. Here's a picture of Ali rumble in the jungle. This is Ali using the rope-a-dope. So what rope-a-dope means is this tactic where you kind of, you lean up against the ropes, you pretend like you're about to get knocked out, you put your, your fist up, and you just take a bunch of punches in your, your opponent, thinking he's about to knock you out, right? He draws in close, he wears himself out, thinking he's gonna knock you out, and then when he has exhausted himself trying to knock you out, you fight back with this hidden energy and aggression and bam you knock him out rope a dope then in more common parlance more common usage usage uh, outside the ring rope a dope refers to this tactic where you kind of you kind of sneakily set somebody up for something that they don't see coming right, so for example when my when my wife has worked a very long shift she comes home and i've got the candles lit you know dinner made a nice little cab poured and a I give her a foot massage, you know, while asking her how her day went. Yeah, amen. <laughs> and then right when she tells me that I'm the greatest husband ever, I ask if I can go to Vegas for the weekend with my buddies. Like that. <laughs> Bam! That's the rope it up. It's probably what got some of you to church this morning. You just figured it out. Oh, my gosh. That's what the donuts were. The old rope it up. It's precisely what Paul pulls here. In Romans 2, because as Dave alluded to last week, Romans 1 is basically Paul just like, bam, laying the hammer down on the Gentiles. 
right? Paul, Paul just says, there, there are others out there. They hate God. They're wicked and greedy and depraved. And they're just doing all these awful things, eating food, sacrificed to idols, having sex with everybody. Just everybody having sex with everybody out in the Gentile world. Paul paints this very negative picture of the Gentiles as being these polytheistic, you know, pansexual pagans, right? It's very terrible, very terrible out there. And knowing what we now know about Paul's audience, because we've We've read Romans backwards, you see. Uh, we know that the Jewish Christians in the room, they are just loving this part of Paul's letter, right? They're eating it up, man. He's using all their favorite talking points, talking trash about the Gentiles. Oh, it's catnip to them. So they're so happy, y'all. They're as, they're as happy as a, as, a, as a Republican listening to Tucker Carlson. You know, happy as a, as a Democrat listening to Rachel Maddow. Happy as an aspiring young socialist at a Bernie Sanders stump speech. You know, they are pumped. They're loving. The amens are just raining down. They're grinning from ear to ear as Phoebe reads this part of Paul's letter. And they're smiling so big that they don't even see Paul, right? Winding up for this massive uppercut. He then delivers in verse 1. This is what Paul says. He says, therefore you... I have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now, as a room full of, I'm going to assume, Gentiles, um, it is difficult for us to comprehend just how shocking and slanderous an accusation this would have been to the Jewish Christians in the room. We practice the same things as the Gentiles. We practice the same things as, again, the pork-eating, pagan, pansexual Gentile. We practice the same things as the Gentiles. You've gone too far, Paul. James Dunn, he's one of the best New Testament scholars of our age. He does a great job explaining why it was so difficult for Jewish Christians to accept that God had accepted the Gentiles. Right? Because Jewish Christians, they knew that they were sinful, right? That's what the sacrificial system was for. They knew that they were sinful. But God's special election of them had also tended to make them believe that their sin wasn't as bad as Gentile sin. Right? And then also to believe that when it came to their judgment, God would, God would show them some favoritism. God would go easy on them. Listen to how he explains it. He says, they don't sin like the Gentiles. Or if they do, their sin is it's not so serious. Thus Israel is disciplined, but others are punished. Israel is chastised, but others are scourged. Israel is tested, but the ungodly are condemned. Israel expects, that's a good word, expects mercy, but their opponents can only look for wrath. And Paul is just relentless on this. He says, look, listen up. When you place yourself in judgment over others, and you judge them as being morally inferior to you, then you can rest assured that all that has actually happened is you have placed yourself under the judgment of God. When you place yourself over others in judgment of them, then you can rest assured that all that has actually happened is you have placed yourself under the judgment of God. He's ruthless on it. He gets very sarcastic in verses 24. You pick up on it. He says, you, you imagine yourself a guide to the blind. You think you're a light in the darkness. You're a corrector of the foolish. You're a teacher of the immature, but you don't even know how to teach yourself. And you are storing up wrath for yourself. Can you believe how just arrogant and judgmental these Jewish Christians were? Can you believe that? Be careful now. Be careful. Because of course you do. Because you and I practice the exact same thing. Like most of us, we probably all have this general understanding, I think, that, that we sin. I think everybody in here knows that they sin. You know that. But we also tend to believe that our sin isn't as bad 
as their sin. And because of this, we tend to be very judgmental of people who sin differently than we do. For example, people will occasionally come up to me and they'll ask me why I don't preach more about some specific sin that they think I should preach more. Now, like, why don't I preach more about uh, abortion or divorce, veganism? You know? <laughs> things need to be covered. And what I've discovered is that almost any time somebody tells me that they think I should talk more about some specific sin, it's almost never a sin that they personally struggle with. You know what I mean? You picking up here? I've discovered that people really like to hear me talk about other people's sins. I'll give you an example. This guy came up to me not too long ago, introduced himself, said it was his first time at Vista in person, but he'd been listening online. He listened to all of our messages, which, A, is unbelievable. And, and he had noticed something, and it really, really bothered him, and he needed to ask me about it. I was like, okay, interesting way to introduce yourself, but okay. He says, here's the deal. I've listened to all y'all's messages, and why don't you talk more about gay marriage? You've addressed it once or twice, but you just got to talk about it more. It's a huge problem, and you need to be talking about this more. I said, well, man, okay. Let me ask you a question. It's kind of personal, so don't take it the wrong way. But um, are you gay? He's like, am I? No, no, I'm not. My, my wife's right over there. No, I'm not gay. I said, well, man, if you're not gay, then why are you so concerned with what you think people who are gay need to hear? Well, like, don't you think you should probably be more concerned with like what you need to hear? Don't you think you should probably be more concerned with what you struggle with? So maybe you should be asking me why I don't talk more about, I don't know, you're a guy. I go out on a limb here. <clears throat> why don't I talk more about pornography? Staring at your neighbor, your neighbor in, her, in her yoga pants for too long? Like maybe that would be a little bit more applicable for you? He did not come back. Um, but I need to be careful, right? Because what am I doing? Now I'm judging him for judging them. And Paul would say to me, be prepared, officers, because you, you practice the exact same thing as him. You see now why it's so difficult to avoid falling into the judgment trap? Because most of us do what? Most of us most concern ourselves with what should least concern us. And let this one sink in for a second. Most of us most concern ourselves with what should least concern us. Like I, I am a type A first child in everything that that means. Task-oriented, driven, achiever, perfectionist, Enneagram one. If you know Enneagram one, it's like a personality type. This is the way I view the world. This is me. This is all hell breaking loose, and this is the rest of you. Okay? That's the way I think about the world. Amen. We got another amen. Now, if that still doesn't make sense to you, all it means is that I, I like to get things done, done quickly and done well. I don't like to sit around in a mess talking about each other's feelings. Right? Like some of you that thought of like sitting around in a messy living room with that cup of coffee that you've warmed over 64 times because you only take one sip every 10 minutes. Talking about each other's feelings. That sounds so great to you. It sounds like hell to me. I don't want anything to do with that. And because of this, because of this, because of this, I am the sworn enemy. I am the sworn enemy of what I like to call the bless this mess movement. You know the bless this mess movement? You see their propaganda all over Magnolia, right? The bless this mess movement. I'll tell you what the bless this mess movement is, and you already know what it is. The bless this mess movement is a bunch of unorganized people telling all the world's organized people that we all need to just, we all just need to chill out. 
and embrace the mess and celebrate the mess and bless the mess, blah, 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 blah. And so on behalf of all the world's organized people, on behalf of all the world's responsible first children, I stand here today to plant my flag and say enough of this because no, we the world's organized people, we will not be bullied into embracing the mess or celebrating the mess or blessing the mess. And we demand that the rest of you get your you-know-what together and you clean this mess up. Clean it up. We're going to have a rally for all the world's organized people in the commons. We will march on D.C. and we will clean this mess up. So, as you can tell, I am a lot of fun to be married to. Um, my wife and I, we have three young and very rowdy children. You've probably seen them run through here from time to time trying to burn this place down. Um, we both have very demanding jobs, and so this means that no matter how organized we try to be, there are always many messes abounding in the Fisher household. And I tend to be very concerned with these messes and very critical of the culprits. But, of course, the thing I should most concern myself with is what? It's being a cold, judgmental, overly disciplined father and husband. That's what I should be most concerned with. Like, I should be most concerned with my flaws, but instead I prefer to be concerned with your flaws. And closely related to this is the phenomenon profoundly amplified by social media in which so many of us spend more time confessing other people's sins than we do confessing our own. I swear you, half of media and social media at this point, especially Facebook and Twitter, God bless, it is a bunch of adults tattling on each other like toddlers confessing each other's sins. It is conservatives confessing the sins of progressives. It is progressives confessing the sins of conservatives. And it is gross. And so I like to challenge you, as I think the Apostle Paul would, to do an audit of your confessions. And if you discover, as I think many of us do, self-included, that you spend more time confessing their sins than your sins, then you should probably just stop it. Just stop it. Don't justify it. Just stop it. Just stop doing it. Call it what it is. And this brings us back to our text where Paul, you know, he has just pummeled the pride of these Jewish Christians for a whole chapter. And then here in verse 3, he comes around to this really simple but very powerful summarization of what he's been trying to say in the form of a question. This is chapter 3, verse 9. Here's what Paul says. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now, I want you to think about that person or group of people whom you most despise, who you most dislike. Now, it could be an individual who hurt you personally, deeply. It could be the group of people who you think are, are ruining the country. It could be a boss, spouse, coworker, an ex, whatever. You got it? You got them? Picture in your head? You're them? You got them? Now I want you to hear Paul's question. What's Paul say? Are you better than them? Are you better than them? And what would be Paul's answer? Not at all. Isn't that so irritating? Because yes, I am. Yes, you are. We are better than them. You know? it's, I think one of the things you discover about us as humans over time, man, is that we're, we're mostly pretty polite on the surface. Most modern people are pretty polite. Deep down, y'all, we really do think that we're better than other people. 
And that's why the gospel is so hard to understand, especially for people who think they've basically understood it. In fact, I think the gospel is most difficult to understand if you think you've understood it. Because are you better than them? Are you better than them? No, in the moment you were tempted to answer that question, yes, you've just, just displayed why you're not better than them and why you've actually placed yourself under the judgment of God. And that brings us to the very end of our text, Romans 3. We're going to wrap up here with verses 21 through 30. These are some of the most beautiful scriptures in the New Testament, Romans 3, 21 through 30. Paul says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness or the faithfulness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? It's gone. By what kind of law of works? No, by law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Romans 3, 21 through 30. Here's how I would summarize what Paul is, is trying to say here in Romans 3, 21 through 30 in two very, very simple summary sentences. All right, first off, the bad news it is worse than you thought. Right, whatever you thought it was, I promise it's worse than that. Now, in context, <clears throat> Paul is specifically talking to these Jewish Christians, you know, and he's saying, look, God did elect Israel. Israel is God's elect. God chose you to be the people through whom he raised Jesus the Messiah. But that doesn't mean that you're better than the Gentiles. It doesn't. And it doesn't mean that God is ultimately going to show you any sort of favoritism or partiality because there is no partiality with God. And so all that wrath, you know, that big bowl of wrath that you were excited about God just pouring out on all those pagan Gentiles, all that wrath, that's what's coming for you too because you are not better than them. Then in our context, the bad news is worse than you thought means that is un unbelievably irritating as it is to hear when all is said and done no you are not better than them then whomever it is that you think is just the worst you're not better than them and that brings us to our second very important and simple summary sentence the bad news is worse than you thought it is but the good news is better than you have imagined. Whatever you think the good news of the gospel is, I promise you it is better than that. Now, the good news, the good news that we call the gospel is that you don't have to be good to be forgiven, accepted, and loved by your maker. The good news that we call the gospel is that the only person in a position to judge anybody is the Jesus who has already in his crucifixion judged everybody and judged everybody guilty. It's guilty as charged. All the charges stick, man. He has judged us guilty, but nevertheless unconditionally forgiven, accepted, and loved by our maker. Jesus Christ is the only one in a position to judge anyone, and everyone has already been judged guilty, but forgiven, accepted, and loved by God through Christ on the cross. I love the way Karl Barth puts this greatest theologian of the 20th century in this little section of his work 
called Jesus, the judge judged in our place. Jesus is the judge who has been judged in our place. Listen to what he says, and this will be the last word. He says, it's a nuisance, and at bottom, an intolerable nuisance, to have to be the man or the woman who judges. It's a nuisance to always have to be convincing ourselves that we're innocent, that we're right, and it's also a nuisance to always have to convince ourselves that others are wrong. Now, if we eat of this tree, this tree of judgment, then we must die. We're all in the process of dying from this office of judge which we have arrogated to ourselves. It is therefore a liberation that it has come to pass in Jesus Christ that we are deposed and dismissed from this office because he has come to exercise it in our place. It is no longer necessary that I should pronounce myself free and righteous nor pronounce others guilty. Neither will help me or them in the very least. To find and pronounce judgment is no longer my office or in any way my concern. I am not the judge. Jesus Christ is the judge. The matter is taken out of my hands. And that, that means liberation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. We are not entitled to the breath in our lungs, the food in our bellies, the hugs, the handshakes, the high fives, the ability to sing, God, all this. It's all a gift. It's all grace. And so we come before you this morning and we confess that we have, uh, we have placed ourselves in this role of judge over others. And while we know that we sin, we do tend to believe that, you know, our sin isn't as bad as their sin. And ultimately, God, we think that we are better than them. And so the bad news is, is that we're not. We're really not better than them. But the good news is that we don't have to be good to be unconditionally forgiven, accepted, and loved. The good news is that the Jesus who is in the position, the judge to judge us all, has already judged us guilty, but still forgiven, accepted, and loved. And I just pray that that good news would settle down in our hearts a little bit deeper today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.